Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We're pleased to share the recording from our third webinar in the three-part series, Love God, Love Neighbor, Episcopal Month of Action. The third and final webinar in our series is Episcopal Action on Asylum. In today's webinar recording, we covered an overview of asylum in the United States, information about the new rule proposed, a panel conversation with our guest, and specific actions you can take today to advocate for continued protection for asylum. We extend our thanks to today's panelists, as well as all of the gracious panelists we had the opportunity to dialogue with throughout the Love God, Love Neighbor series. Today's panelists will introduce themselves at the beginning of the webinar. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. We encourage you to take the advocacy steps outlined in the webinar. Links to the advocacy actions covered in the webinar will be available in the podcast notes and on the EMM website blog. We're so glad that you're joining us for today's webinar, Episcopal Action on Asylum. This is the third in a three-part series called Love God, Love Neighbor, Episcopal Month of Action. We will begin today with a brief framing of the webinar, introductions of our panelists, and then we will go into a time of prayer and reflection with the Reverend Canon Jean-Baptiste Nguengwa. We'll then move into some background on the asylum system, the changes that have occurred under the Trump administration, and importantly, the new proposed rule that would restrict asylum protections even further. Following that background, we'll have a conversation with our panelists. Our time today will conclude with an important conversation about how we can all be advocates and the important advocacy actions we each need to be taking in this time. We'll have a Q&A, one more time of prayer together, and then we'll all move into action. Today's webinar, as Kendall mentioned, is the third of three webinars in our Love God, Love Neighbor Episcopal Month of Action series. On June 9th, we discussed DACA, on June 16th, we discussed refugee resettlement, and today we will learn how to take action for asylum. There are a few things I want to note before we jump into introductions and kick off today's presentation. We want to acknowledge that not only are we living in a time of uncertainty and fear from a global pandemic, but we are also experiencing deep pain and a movement as a nation to confront systemic racism and police brutality. If you've been learning and paying attention to how the history and the present of US immigration restrictionism, including the denial of protections to refugees and asylum seekers, you know that systemic racism and white supremacy permeates the US immigration system as well. That's why we've been gathered together this month for Love God, Love Neighbor, Episcopal Month of Action. 
We're living in a moment that demands that we act for social justice and practice radical love. Today's webinar is an opportunity for you to learn tangible ways you can advocate for asylum seekers, for children, women, and men who have been forced to flee their homes due to persecution, conflict, or fear of death, and who have not yet received refugee status or protections. When asylum seekers come to the United States, they should be able to express their credible fear and receive a fair hearing of their claim. They should be given the opportunity to seek asylum, a fundamental human right. However, as you'll learn today, the asylum system in the US is not working as it is meant to. In complete contradiction to international law and our own US law, asylum seekers are being turned away or pushed back into danger, are being held in prison-like detention for months or years, are separated from their children, or are denied the opportunity to prove their refugee status as our government continues to ever more narrowly define who is worthy of protection. As people of faith, as Episcopal followers of Jesus, we promise at our baptisms to respect the dignity of every human being. This means speaking out against draconian changes to the U.S. asylum system. It is more important than ever that we speak out and advocate for asylum seekers and walk alongside them as they seek safety in the U.S. and around the world. So with that framing and that understanding of why we are all here today, I'm going to ask our panelists to turn their cameras on and we're going to go into introductions. So I'll turn it over to my colleague, Rashad Thomas. Rashad, over to you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Rashad Thomas. I'm a policy advisor in the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations in Washington, DC. And I'm joining you today from my home in Maryland. Hi, I'm Kendall Martin. I'm the communications manager for Episcopal Migration Ministries. And I'm joining you today from my home in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Allison Duval, and I'm EMM's Manager for Church Relations and Engagement, coming to you from my mother's home in Lexington, Kentucky. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to our panelists today, to the Reverend Joseph Mumita. So Joseph, over to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Reverend Joseph Mumita. I live in Arrowboro, Massachusetts, and uh, right now I'm in the office uh, where I serve. I'm Director of Episcopal Center of uh, Church of St. Thomas in Taunton in Massachusetts. And our next panelist is the Reverend Canon Jean-Baptiste Nagengwa. Jean-Baptiste, over to you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jean-Baptiste Nagengwa. I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, uh, Canon for Immigration and Multicultural Ministries in the Diocese of Massachusetts. I'm joining you from my home in Everett, Massachusetts. I, I want to take this opportunity, first of all, to thank all of you and to thank God for this opportunity that uh, we are given. Uh, in my uh, prayer and reflection, you will see that I will be kind of, it's a, it's a monologue or dialogue. I'm, there, I'm talking to God and, um, that's how I try to approach this um, uh, reflection. But I will start by the collect of the third Sunday after Pentecost. 
Let us pray. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name. For you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Gracious and loving God, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we read that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, as Christians, we are committed to treating every human being as created in God's image. Every human being, including migrants and asylum seekers. However, elsewhere in the Bible, we read that you show no partiality and accept no bribes, that you defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and that you love the foreigner, giving them food and clothing. In Hebrew 13, verse 2, we are asked not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without, without knowing it. Gracious God, this leads me to believe that in God's economy, there was a provision already that there was going to be people who will be considered as foreigners by someone, somewhere. And I believe I am right, Lord. I believe that you knew that soon after the visit by the Magi, an angel was to appear to Joseph in a dream, telling him to flee to Egypt with Mary and your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, since King Herod would seek the child to kill him. The Holy Family became refugees, foreigners in Egypt. Gracious God, you know that to some point, some people will be forced by some others who have power to flee their countries because of different reasons that would lead to persecution, war, or violence. You know that as time goes by, some people are going to have well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. You know that when this happens, those people who have well-founded fear will be forced to flee to foreign lands, close or far, searching for safety. You also knew that there is going to be people who will give hard time to those people who will be forced to flee. 
And I believe that it is, it is why, that is why the Bible is full of instructions on how to treat migrants. For example, in Leviticus, we read, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must, must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. I am, I am the Lord, your God. And again, in Leviticus chapter 23, we read, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges or of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Dear God, as I write this, I'm sure that you know that some people are striving to live to your expectations and to follow your instructions as mentioned above. You know that many organizations such as Episcopal Migration Ministry are doing all they could to organize us to live up to your expectations in this matter. Some are really living the scripture that you read in Matthew 25, 20, 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. But Lord, I also know that you are saddened by what you see around the world today. I wonder what you think when you see what is happening on the southern border with those caged kids. I wonder what you think when you see policies related to asylum seeking process in this country. I wonder what you think when you see people's res responses to those policies. Gracious God and loving God, what do you say to those, your people, who are persecuted by those, your other people, because they are Christians? Or because they are Muslims? Or because they are LGBTQ members? Or because they are black? or because they hold different political opinions. Gracious God, in baptism, we promise to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors and as ourselves, to strive for justice and peace, and to respect the dignity of every human being. Help us to honor those vows and pray for our nation in this turbulent time and for justice for asylum seekers. God of love and compassion, help us always to recognize your spirit in these asylum seekers, seeking justice for their families in the unaccompanied children traveling in a dangerous, dangerous world. Amen. Thank you, Canon John Baptiste. Thank you so much.
You're welcome. We're going to turn now into our presentation on the background current status and the new proposed federal rule. So to understand um, a bit more about the changes that the Trump administration has put into place and the new proposed federal rule and why it's so devastating, it's really important to understand a bit about the background of where asylum law came from. So that's where we're going to turn now. So we're gonna go back and do some history really quickly. To talk about present day international laws regarding protections and the obligations to protect those fleeing persecution, we have to look back at the impact of World War I. As you well know, World War I saw the dissolution of many empires and the establishment of nation states in Europe and the Middle East. And within these nation states, there were often large ethnic minorities who did not belong to these new ethnic nation states. This left millions of people stateless. And then of course, in World War II, we see the rise of socio-political movements, including Nazism, that engaged in mass persecution and in genocide, killing millions of people and leaving millions more in need of protection. Nation states responded to the forced displacement and the horrors of World War II with the Geneva Convention of 1951. This is the key legal framework for refugee protections and for the United Nations Refugee Agency's work, UNHCR. UNHCR is the guardian of the 1951 Refugee Convention and its later 1967 protocols, which I'll speak about in just a moment. According to the 1951 convention, nation states are expected to cooperate with UNHCR in ensuring that the rights of refugees are respected and protected. The Geneva Convention defines the term refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. These are known as the five protected grounds and we'll speak about them later today as well. The core principle of the Geneva Convention is non-refoulement which asserts that a refugee cannot be forcibly returned to a country where they face threats to their life or their freedom. This is now considered a customary rule in international law. In 1967, the protocols related to the status of refugees strengthened protections for refugees. They eliminated the temporal and geographic limits of the 1951 Geneva Convention's definition. It had limited it to European refugees caused by World War II. It also held that refugees cannot be discriminated against based on their race, religion, or country of origin, and they cannot be penalized for illegal entry. Now, I wanna underscore that. The convention stipulates that subject to very specific exceptions, refugees should not be penalized for their illegal entry or stay. It recognizes that the seeking of asylum can require refugees to breach immigration rules. So please hold on to that as we go forward in today's conversation. The U.S. signed the 1967 protocol and in 1980 adopted it into the U.S. Refugee Act. As the American Immigration Council states, 
as a signatory to the 1967 protocol and through U.S. immigration law, the United States has legal obligations to provide protection to those who qualify as refugees. The Refugee Act established two paths to refugee status, either from abroad as a resettled refugee or in the United States as an asylum seeker. And if you were with us last week, you learned a bit more about the Refugee Resettlement Program. Today, we are of course talking about the asylum system. So I'm gonna go very quickly through this. We're not gonna spend much time speaking about um, getting in the weeds on US asylum law and policies, but I want to just highlight a few things for you to understand about the US asylum system and how it's meant to work. Again, I'm indebted to the American Immigration Council for the information I'm about to provide because they offer a really clear, concise explanation of these two processes. So there are two primary ways in which a person can apply for asylum in the US, the affirmative process and the defensive process. In the affirmative process, someone is not in removal proceedings and they affirmatively apply for asylum through US Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, which is a division of the Department of Homeland Security. So they affirmatively apply submitting form I-589. If the USCIS asylum officer does not grant the asylum application and the applicant does not have a lawful immigration status, he or she is referred to the immigration court for removal proceedings where he or she may renew the request for asylum through the defensive process and appear before an immigration judge. So the defensive process, to be very um, succinct about it, is when someone uses asylum as a defense from deportation or removal. So this is for someone who is already in a removal proceedings. They apply defensively by filing an application with the immigration judge at the Exec Executive Office for Immigration Review, EOIR, which is the immigration court system in the Department of Justice. In other words, asylum is applied for as a defense against removal from the US. Unlike the criminal court system, the immigration court system does not provide appointed counsel for individuals in immigration court, even if they're unable to retain an attorney on their own. Asylum seekers who arrive at a US port of entry or enter the United States without inspection, that's EWI, they generally apply, must apply through the defensive process. Both application processes require that the asylum seeker has to be physically present in the US. With or without counsel, an asylum seeker has the burden of proving that he or she meets the definition of refugee, which you heard me speak to earlier. Asylum seekers often provide substantial evidence throughout the affirmative and defensive processes, demonstrating either past persecution or that they have a well-founded fear of future persecution in their home country. However, the individual's own testimony is usually critical to his or her asylum determination. Now, it's important to note that there are certain factors that bar individuals from seeking asylum, including criminal activity, terrorism, uh, or if they've been a persecutor of others. These are mandatory bars to asylum. I'd like to leave you now with the words of Dina Nayeri, the author of the compelling book, The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You. 
EMM offers book discussion kits on this and other titles. And we interviewed Dina on an episode of EMM's Hometown Podcast last year. Some background on the excerpt I'm about to read. Early in the book, Dina raises critical questions about how the West understands the word refugee and how the West denies protections to refugees based on sinister claims that someone is, quote, an economic migrant. Every day of her new life, Dina writes, the refugee is asked to differentiate herself from the opportunist, the economic migrant. Who is a true refugee? It makes me chuckle, this notion that refugee is a sacred category, a people hallowed by evading hell. What is hell enough for the West to feel responsible? not just as perpetrators of much of the madness, but as primary beneficiaries of the planet's bounty, who sit behind screens watching, suspicious and limp-fisted, as strangers suffer. Meanwhile, we assign our least talented, most cynical bureaucrats to be the arbiters of complicated truth, not instructing them to save lives or search out the weary and the hopeless, but to root out lies, to protect our fat entitlements, our space at any moral cost. It is a failure of duty. Now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague Kendall to speak to us about the changes the Trump administration has made to the asylum system. Kendall, over to you. Thanks, Allison. So now that you have an understanding of the asylum process and the rights that are guaranteed to people seeking asylum, um, it's important to understand the drastic shifts in policy that have occurred under the current administration. So beginning in February 2016, the U.S. started metering at the San Cedro Port of Entry. And so this means asylum seekers who presented themselves at the U.S. border were told to wait in Mexico. Generally, their names were placed on a list and Border Patrol would call for them once the Port of Entry had capacity to process them. Asylum seekers were prevented from exercising their right to be processed for asylum. The Trump administration formalized the metering policy in April 2018 and enacted it at all ports of entry. And at the same time, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a zero tolerance immigration policy. This policy directed U.S. attorney's offices on the border to prosecute any person who entered the U.S. without authorization. While this offense has been a federal crime for many years, the U.S. government usually only focused on people who had serious criminal convictions. By June 2018, 46% of adults apprehended by border control were prosecuted. In addition to an increase in prosecutions, the zero tolerance policy separated children from their families. Undocumented asylum seekers were sent to detention and their children were taken into custody by the Department of Health and Human Services and placed in a government facility or short-term foster care. It's important to note that while this rule brought attention to the separation of families at the border, children were being removed from their parents as early as 2017. At least 2,700 children were separated from their parent or caregiver 
between October 1st, 2017 and May 31st, 2018. Now in June 2018, the Trump administration signed an executive order ending the separation of children from their families. The administration maintained they were forced to separate children from their families because of the Flores settlement, the 1997 settlement that said unaccompanied children should be kept in the least restrictive setting possible and detained for a limited time. The executive order directed the attorney general to file a request to have the settlement modified to say that children should be detained with their families. In 2019, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security began implementing new programs that drastically changed the process for claiming asylum. The first change came through the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. MPP requires asylum seekers to be sent back to Mexico to wait for their immigration court dates. Instead of receiving credible fear interviews, individuals are put directly into the court proceeding process. The next change came by the DHS rule banning asylum for any individual who traveled through a third country before arriving in the U.S. without claiming asylum in that country. Both the MPP and the third country rule have been struck down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In September 2019, the Supreme Court issued a stay on both nationwide injunctions and reinstated the third country rule. In March of this year, the Supreme Court ruled to allow MPP to continue, but have yet to make a ruling on the legality of the program itself. Both are currently on hold with the Supreme Court. Over the course of the summer and fall of 2019, the U.S. government signed asylum cooperative agreements with Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. These agreements signify cooperation from the respective countries to limit asylum access to the United States. Also known as a safe third country agreement, it means an individual seeking asylum in the U.S. can be deported to the safe third country, so long as the immigrant would have access to a full and fair procedure for determining their asylum claims and would not have their life or freedom put at risk due to their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or social group membership. Since 2002, the U.S. has had a formal safe third country agreement with Canada. Obviously, the issue here is that the three countries we have signed cooperative agreements with do not fit the protocol of what constitutes a safe third country. Many people who are coming to the border to claim asylum are coming from the very countries we are trying to send them back to. These three countries are not safe options, do not have adequate systems in place for a person to file for asylum, and sending people back to these countries may put the United States in violation of our obligation under international law to avoid refoulement. The practice Ellison described of forcibly returning refugees or asylum seekers to a country where they are liable to be subjected to violence or persecution. As of March 2020, due to the CDC recommendations to suspend the introductions of persons who have been in coronavirus impacted areas, Border Patrol turned away anyone arriving at the border to seek asylum, regardless of their credible fear. And now I'm going to turn it over to Rashad to give us an update on where we stand now with the newest asylum rule proposed. Thank you, Kendall. Um, so now we will explain the new asylum rule announced by the administration last week. Um, these changes come fast and furious, unfortunately. Um, firstly, it narrows and redefines what qualifies as persecution for purposes of applying for asylum. Secondly, it allows immigration judges to dismiss asylum claims they don't think have a good chance of succeeding um, before they've even held a hearing. The rule also defines the following as 
um, negative factors. Crossing or attempting to cross the border illegally, not filing taxes, working without authorization, or using fraudulent travel documents. Um, I should note just on that point that um, many asylum seekers have to resort to those sorts of things because their home countries won't give them um, the papers they need to to leave a, a terrible situation. So it's, it's particularly egregious, um, but I digress. <laughs> it also requires um, immigration judges to uh, consider adverse factors such as traveling through another country to reach the U.S., living undocumented in the United States for more than a year and having criminal convictions that were vacated or expunged. Um, the regulations will also eliminate gender-based asylum for women who are fleeing domestic abuse, as well as queer and trans victims of persecution. It gives DHS officers the power to declare asylum applications frivolous, um, a power that currently only rests with immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals. A frivolous finding bars the applicant from obtaining any U.S. immigration benefit for the rest of his or her life. Um, the regulation will also establish that a well-founded fear of being persecuted by gangs and terrorists will no longer be a basis for granting asylum. In addition to denying young people um, asylum, who face conscription, forced conscription, by terrorist groups or gangs. Finally, the regulation will eliminate protections under the UN Convention Against Torture to persons who were tortured physically or mentally by the police or members of the military who were deemed as rogue officials acting not under color of law, a particularly egregious um, element given what we are currently going through in this country with police brutality um, extending, the administration wants to extend this terrible um, policing activity to foreign countries. It's, I'm, I am very, very um, upset by this <laughs> as an African-American man. Um, but I, I, again, I digress. It will also make it more difficult for asylum seekers in expedited removal proceedings to apply for withholding or removal when they have been barred from asylum by the administration's existing asylum rule changes. These are just the main regulatory changes implemented by this new asylum ban. Um, Greg Chen, the Director of Government Relations for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, called the proposed rule, and I quote, the kitchen sink of asylum bans and will end any notion of asylum that still remains. Recognizing that this administration has already issued so many previous bans, unquote, as, as my colleagues um, have noted, if the, DH, if the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department attempt to implement the regulation as it is, you can expect that there will be immediate challenges in federal court. One more recent development to note before we move on. Last week, the administration also announced additional rules that will make life more difficult for asylum seekers. The policy will make asylum seekers who do not cross into the country at a port of entry ineligible for a work permit in most cases. It will also delay the time it takes for those who apply for asylum, um, either while already in the US or after crossing the border and being referred to immigration court to become qualified to get a work permit, extending it from 150 days currently to 365 days. Um, I should note that the, the Senate has um, a bill sponsored by Senator Susan Collins from Maine 
that would actually cut the, the date, the, the number of days from 150 days down to 30 days. Um, that is a very good piece of legislation. Um, asylum seekers who do not file for protections within one year of arriving, arriving in the United States will also be denied a permit. So very unfortunate picture for um, asylum seekers in this country. Thank you so much, Rashad. Um, and now we're going to be joined by our two panelists, Father Joseph and Father Jean-Baptiste. And we want to thank you again for joining us today and taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Um, so we're gonna start with a round robin style conversation and we'll begin with Rashad. Alrighty, um, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'd like to start the conversation by asking you to tell us about yourselves and your families, where you were born, what was your childhood like, what transpired that led you to settle in the United States? I kind of go first. Um, again, uh, I am Jean-Baptiste Nadiengwa. Uh, I was born and grew up in Rwanda. Uh, I'm sure most of you all who are participating and listening know Rwanda, no one, everyone knows Rwanda because of its history, especially in 1994. So uh, I was born there and grew up there. Uh, in Rwanda, probably you know that we have three ethnic groups, but are they really ethnic groups? I, we, we speak the same language, we have the same culture, we, we eat the same food, we we, we intermarry, so I don't know how those are ethnic groups, but that's how, the, how it is. Um, as I was growing up, uh, I, I went to uh, primary school, then from there went to uh, secondary school, uh, probably like high school, but uh, kind of a little bit uh, higher than that. And, and then uh, and was able to be helped by many individuals as I was growing up, I come from a, a, a not so well of family. Uh, so to some point, I, I used, I, uh, I was helped by Caritas to finish my, my secondary school. Uh, and when I finished, uh, I was lucky to have a good job. I did um, the section I, I took in high, high school was was good and then it was easy to find a job i immediately found a job uh actually i was doing three jobs at that time i <laughs> i think i was the real people in rwanda who do three jobs i started seeing that it's normal to do more than two jobs when i got here but there uh most people would, would, would do farming and do some one job and that's it so i was doing three jobs i was an accountant I was um, teaching at two different uh, se secondary schools. Uh, and then eventually I left that job to go to, to do uh, financial administrative of, um, of a hospital that belonged to the Anglican church. But before I went there, I was also, I worked for the popular banks. It's a, it's a system uh, banks that were in a different district. And so I, was, I worked for, for them as a uh, regional uh, representative. Uh, so that's my background. I got, uh, in 1993, I got married. 
and then in, that was in August. In January of 1994, uh, my wife and I left Rwanda. We, we, headed to, we were headed to Kenya, and the plan was to be there for three months just to, to, to learn uh, English. Because I was working, we, our, part, our partners were from England and US, and so uh, we, I did not speak English, and, and most of the correspondence was in English. So I needed some 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 base uh, basis basic of English to at least to read and understand the uh, a, a letter. Uh, eventually, we were supposed to go back to to, to the home on tenth of April. But it did not happen because on the 6th, uh, the presidential uh, aircraft was shut down and he died and with his crew and his counterpart from Burundi and that started uh, the genocide that, that you, everybody knows what happened. So I started being a refugee from there. Oh, I, started, I went to UNHCR in July, went to Congo. Uh, and was uh, a coordinator of a, of a refugee camp for a while, uh, for a year and something, and then went back to Kenya. Uh, we got our first uh, child in, in the refugee camp in Congo, then Zaire. And then we came over here in, uh, in 1999. That's when I came. And then my family joined me in 2000, in January. Uh, I think that that's kind of the background of me, that that that. That's me. So I think that your question, Rashad, was also had a section to ask how, how, how what, how it transpired that I got, we got here. Was that the question? Okay. So two, two things or three things. Uh, as, as you know, what happened in Rwanda, from that time on, even now, no one can claim that there is safety. Wherever you go, you you meet new, even new new refugees, new people who are fleeing. So it was, it was not safe to go back to Rwanda. because uh, I went, we went there quickly and came back three times. And, and then when we were in Kenya, uh, uh, I, was, I was doing my, my studies, my, my first degree uh, in divinity. Uh, when I finished, oh, I was, I was, as I was looking at, at the, uh, at what to do next, uh, a friend came to where we, we lived. I think we were a few people who had a computer. We, we had brought a computer, a, a church computer with us. So people who want to type a letter would come to us. And then uh, somebody came with an address to, to write to Harvard Divinity School to apply for admission. And this person left, he forgot that email, that address to, to my computer. When I, I landed on it, I, I, I wrote to Harvard University and then I was admitted and I came as a student. But again, I, was, I left my family in Kenya and I, I was not planning to go back. So my first hope as I got here was, as soon as I get here, I will apply for asylum. But before I do that, I would need my family to join me. So I worked with the university. We were able to, to raise money. So they came. Um, I, my, then I had two, two, two children. So my wife and two children came, joined me. Then we applied for asylum. 
that's what uh, uh, Arison said about about um, affirmative uh, uh, application. So I was naive. I thought this is this is, anyone know that this this is clear that we in Rwanda there's no it's not safe. We, as soon as you go back, you can be killed. So I was naive. I thought that my application would be approved. I did not even go to look for a lawyer or anything. I took a form and filled out and sent it. <laughs> you know, did I know that it was going to be denied? They sent me um, a notice to, to deny, intended, intent to deny. And then that's, that's when I looked for a lawyer to help me. And that lawyer... Uh, did what he could, but because of what I have written in my application and how I have been naive in my interviews, they said that uh, I was there was no there was inconsistency in what I in, in my 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 my, system, my process. So it was denied, and they told me there is no there is no appeal against that decision. They asked my lawyer, "What is this? Does this mean?" Well, he said, "I don't know. This is the first time I heard this. But since you are still a student, wait until you have your you finish. Come to me, and then we will talk. See if we can now uh, go for this um, def defensive. So, so we, we tell the, the immigration to deport you. Then we, we, we go through that. But at the same time, he said, but there are some other ways.'" Uh, and then those other ways, uh, if you want me to talk about that now or maybe later, I can, I can do it if you, so that I don't take much time and give time, uh, opportunity to Joseph to, to speak. I think it would be great for you to address that later. Thank you. Again, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> my name, as you have uh, heard, I'm uh, Reverend Joseph Momita. I was born and raised up on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro that borders uh, Kenya and Tanzania. I schooled there in my primary school uh, for eight years and uh, I went to high school in the same district of Kajiado. And when I finished high school, I uh, did not go straight to work because at the time when I was in high school, I was preaching and uh, you know, my parish pastor or a priest used to, uh, you know, invite uh, me to preach uh, from his pulpit. And therefore, I sort of got inspired to become an evangelist. And uh, so after that, I went for evangelism training, uh, not in Kenya, but in Tanzania. Uh, that took about uh, seven months. Uh, but uh, I didn't finish uh, the seven months. I came back to Kenya, and um, uh, that was uh, back in 1994. And when I came back, you know, I applied for college. Uh, that particular time, I applied to colleges, and I was given a scholarship in a college in Nigeria, Christian Faith University, where I attended, uh, and I went 1996. Uh, all the way to 1998. And before I went to Nigeria, I was uh, having my best friend who uh, became my wife. Uh, we were engaged somehow. Uh, uh, my, my wife, uh, uh, 
Grace, and she was my fiancée then. And uh, so when I came back after graduating in 1998, I was, um, I did not go back to Kajiado. I uh, was uh, received in the diocese of Mount Kenya South, uh, which is in Kiambu, which borders Nairobi. Uh, that area is the area that uh, Reverend Baptiste lived. Uh, so he knows very well what I'm talking about. And uh, it, it's a very high populated area uh, the, in the suburb of Nairobi City. And uh, when I was, um, uh, you know, received uh, by the Diocese of Montekenya South, I was attached in one of the parishes under the priest. And I was there for a couple of months before I was given uh, my parish, even before I was ordained. That was very, uh, you know, uh, I was working under the dean uh, for a couple of months. And within that first six months, I, that, that's the time I, I, I was at the same time preparing to have my wedding with my wife, Grace, and, uh, you know, my fancy. And we, we married, and the same month we married, that is 1999, the same uh, month I was ordained a deacon. And, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, so we started now working in the Dawson Mountain South. I was now a deacon and uh, I was, you know, uh, doing the work of a priest, although I could not consecrate the, you know, the element, the, uh, the, uh, the Eucharist, you know, for someone would come and consecrate the Eucharist and then they, they, then they are going, they will leave and leave the Eucharist, you know, for me to serve. I had a parish of four churches, so four congregations uh, in a remote area called Gedongori. And uh, I had only one evangelist and one lay leader. That's where I worked uh, for two years before I was promoted uh, to, the, to become the diocesan youth coordinator uh, in uh, the year 2000. And uh, that's uh, how I now went through the lungs uh, the same year I was, you know, ordained priest and, uh, you know, serving now in the parish. I was moved to another parish and also working in the bishop's office as the diocesan youth coordinator. The following year I was, uh, you know, appointed the uh, national youth uh, um, secretary or the secretary general of Kenya Anglican Youth Organization. And at, at that time, I was working, I was the priest also of St. Paul's uh, in a place called Wagutu, and, um, you know, it was a lot of work. So, uh, and the same year, no, before I became the youth coordinator that year, 2000, we got our firstborn son, uh, Moses, and, uh, you know, before we moved to the next parish, where now I got the promotion to become uh, the youth coordinator in the diocese. Uh, so that uh, went on. I, I, I served as the youth coordinator for four years, and in those one year, I broke. I break one year. I went down to uh, Zambia for a diploma in social youth work, and I was there for one year. I left my family in the parish uh, rectory house uh, for one year, and then I came back after studies. And after that, uh, I now left the youth department to uh, a new parish. Then we had a new bishop, so he reorganized. You know, the bishop will come and reorganize the office. 
So I was taken to Paris and I stopped being a youth coordinator uh, from then. And I also wanted to uh, further my studies. So I joined East African School of Theology the following year, uh, you know, for my degree uh, studies. And I was there for three years. And it was during that time that uh, I got an opportunity to go to join um, uh, my colleague who was working uh, on the mission department in the diocese to go to the UK. And during that time, when I came back uh, home, I, uh, at that time, everything was working on well. I was, when I was the youth coordinator and during that particular time I was in school, I was very, there was an emergency of a group which was um, a very violent group in Kenya. Uh, and when I thought of this group, Jean uh, Baptiste knows about it, it is called Mongeke. And this is the group that displaced so many people in Kenya, especially in the central region. And uh, this group would target anybody who is opposed to whatever they were doing. Uh, this group uh, is, was responsible of killing so many people and I buried so many parishioners who were killed, uh, their daughters raped, and some of them were maimed by Mongeke. And there is one of the gentlemen who was killed who now, uh, it was like the source of my problems. Uh, when that gentleman was killed because um, uh, the father was to one of my uh, uh, vestry member and very close to me. Uh, his name was Guinho. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this young man was killed in a very bad way uh, because they chopped off his head and they put it in a, in a public transportation, uh, you know, stage, that's where they put the head, and then they put the body in another town called Dumberi, uh, very close to Kiambu, and they chop off one of his legs, took it very close to his home. So he had three pieces, he was cut into three pieces, and, uh, you know, when I was, during the burial, you know, I seriously condemned uh, with the strongest terms, uh, you know, the actions of Mungiki and all what they were doing to our youth, uh, especially the young people, uh, because they were indoctrinating so many young people in Kenya, especially in the central region, that so many of them, their lives were shattered. Their lives, their hopes and their dreams were shattered. And up to today, uh, so many of them are you know, uh, still in problems. So um, I went, I got an opportunity now to join uh, my friend, Reverend John Dungo, uh, who was the youth, uh, who was the mission coordinator to go to UK uh, to uh, fundraise for the mission work in our diocese. And we were there for three months. And so when I, when we came back, uh, that now uh, I started receiving threats. Uh, and the threats were so enormous, you know, uh, People will call me with different numbers and uh, they will text me. And at some point I could not take it. Uh, I went to the police, but unfortunately not so many, you know, police system in Kenya, especially then didn't work like here or even, even now there's so much in most parts of Africa where 
you can report anything to the police and they will not either they will not take you seriously they will not follow it up and you know i decided because of all this uh you know we started thinking about uh, should we relocate should we what should we do so i went to the bishop uh the then bishop and i shared with the bishop what is happening with me uh but they, there was no much that the bishop could do still so uh uh, at some point now, I received more threats, and uh, the threat came to when uh, they came into my uh, my house in the compound, and they broke and they took some stuff from our house, and and, and that now that was uh, and we were not around, and you know we were in Mombasa, and now I that that needed came so serious that uh, I knew that if I was there then, uh, probably they would have done something to me. And, uh, you know, I, I was not ready for that. So uh, we reported that and nothing was done. Uh, and um, a friend of mine who lived nearby also came from Canada. He was doing his studies in Canada. Uh, his name is Reverend Pishi. And they, they, they came to his house and they broke the house. They they beat the wife, they beat him, and they took all the variables that he had. And at some point, they threatened to kill him. Uh, fortunately, they didn't kill him. Now, when all those threats were going, you know, uh, happening to me and my family, uh, and at that, this particular, this, this is now way back to 2010, 2011, it continued. Uh, I got an opportunity to visit a friend of mine in California. And I came here uh, in California for, uh, I was there for almost three months, two and a half months. And the bishop gave me that break. Uh, that was an extensive uh, uh, vacation uh, because I shared with the bishop what was going on. And we, we thought that something would pull down. And I went back to Kenya. Uh, but when I went back, oh my goodness, it was very serious and so um we thought now there's i i have to leave and you know the bishop gave me an okay uh to leave and i came over here uh when i came here uh 2012 i came back 2012 uh in the month of um july and uh i was hosted by a friend uh, somebody that i officiated their wedding somewhere in Lin, I lived there in their house, and I left my family, uh, and I knew it was going to be very dangerous, but, uh, you know, somebody was after my life, and I, I had to leave, and I left, so um, I came here, and I, when I came, I shared with my, a friend of mine in uh, Diocese of Pennsylvania what, what's happening with my life, and I'm here, and you know, they shared with me and they told me, why can't you go ahead and, you know, file for asylum, you know? And I didn't know anything about asylum, so I, I had just to go through the website and read and read and, you know, um, and I didn't have any money to, uh, you know, to get a lawyer. The family that stayed with me, that I, I stayed in their house, they, they didn't have, they didn't have any knowledge about uh, asylum uh, application. So, Nobody guided me, um, so I uh, just what I was reading, and I I made the application myself. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't know 
uh, that I needed a lawyer. And even if I, 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 I knew I didn't have money to pay a lawyer, I didn't know any organization that would have supported me or anybody that would have supported me. So uh, I just applied it myself. And, uh, you know, a few, after three months, I, I, I got, you know, um, uh, my, my papers were accepted and I was told to wait. So I just waited until 150 days uh, and I applied for work permit. Uh, and then after that, I stayed for a long time before I was called for interview, before my asylum was granted. Thank you both so much. Um, and I know that your experiences are different in terms of applying for asylum and receiving it or um, applying for asylum and not receiving it. And I want, I want to give Jean-Baptiste a chance to speak to that as well. So I'm curious what you think that many Americans maybe don't understand or know about the complexity of asylum or what the experience is and like the lack of support or if you could speak to that. Thank you, Kendo. Thank you for that question. Um, so as you've heard Joseph saying, he did not know, I did not know that there is there's some laws that you need to follow, what you need to do. I thought, I thought you can say, I'm, uh, this is what's happening and you know what's happening there and it happened to me, but not many people really have that knowledge. And, and, uh, and, and I think uh, for going back a little bit to, to my, my, my story, when my application was ultimately denied, uh, I, my lawyer told me there is some other ways to, uh, to, to, to look into that can help. And, and um, what happened was uh, there is what uh, is called uh, a special, special religious immigrant visa that maybe not many people know, but some people do know that. It's an application uh, when you, you are a, a, a member of, of a church for two years and you have been serving or going to school for, for, for a training of that particular uh, ministry and you have a full-time offer of a job uh, or for, for that particular matter, I said they, the, the church can uh, help you or petition on your behalf for that, um, uh, that special religious immigrant visa. So I did not know that at that time, but my lawyer told me that it's, that that's a possibility. And uh, as I was, I was still going to Harvard uh, for my studies, and also, I was also attached to a parish in Cambridge as an associate priest, uh, and then some other opportunities to, to work in the church, to, to be uh, serving in the church uh, were opened. Then the the church the diocese uh, helped me petitioned on my behalf uh, for that special immigrant visa the petition was approved and when it was approved then i i applied for uh, permanent residence and, and then went on to to become naturalized so that's something i would mention that is very very crucial and uh, the, the, where, the, where I mentioned in my reflection that there are some organizations that are taking seriously God's expectation 
to God's people, I would mention that. So for, for, for the larger community, uh, when somebody got, gets here as uh, an asylum or somebody who is fleeing uh, for, or for his, their lives, and getting in a place where they, 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 they now they claim, to, they think it's safe. And when they think it's safe and somebody tells them, no, you, you go back, go back where you, 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 you came from. That's, 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 that's dangerous. That's, that's very sad and very, very hard. I remember uh, some people uh, <laughs> who would ask me, why are, are those people here anyway? Uh, say, well, you know, I, I, think, I thank you that you asked me that question personally, uh, but don't ask them that question. Because if somebody decided to leave their home, to leave their siblings, sometimes to leave their own uh, clothes, but they, they have families and, and leave with nothing, they are fleeing, they are, they, they are, they are, they are in danger. So that's why they are here. So, and, and then when somebody gets here, uh, Joseph was lucky to have the friend who hosted him. There's some other people who get here, there's no one. They don't know anybody. No one to host them, no one to do anything. So I, I, was, I was lucky to, to serve in one of the organizations that, that is in, in Malden here that help asylum seekers. When somebody gets here and doesn't have anything, there's nowhere to go, doesn't have anything to eat, and they find somebody to welcome them to say, here, we are here to support you, to help you, to, to, uh, to, to do what we can to, for you to find somewhere to sleep and some, to have some food to eat, that is something very crucial. And not many people know that that is needed. And because maybe of the, who they are, where they are, they are, they are lives. So they think everybody is okay. Uh, but it is really very important for, for our, our society, for our community, for, our, for, for, for faith-based organizations to think about uh, organizing or knowing what to do with uh, individuals like, like such who, who are fleeing and don't have anybody to help them. And when now, in my case, when I applied for asylum, and it was denied, I was, I was devastated. If there was no other way, there are some other people maybe who don't have that other option. So uh, I don't, I, it, it's really, it's really uh, heartbreaking to, to see uh, how somebody had to, to struggle to prove that there is reasonable, well-founded uh, uh, fear. And even if you do whatever you, can, you want, to, you, you can do, that somebody says, no, there is no that reasonable, uh, well-founded fear. So it is, it is tough. So, so generally speaking, that's what I, I, I would say. Uh, there is a struggle for asylum seekers. There's a struggle 
uh, unlike when we what we we, we uh, the webinar we had here on on uh, last time on refugees somebody who is resettled here they come already with that status they come already having some some benefits from the government at least for the first few months to take care of them to be able to live on to lean on but for asylum seekers zero nothing so i i, I think i i would i would I would suggest that people think about that other layer of immigrants who are without nothing but need to be to live like anyone else. Uh, in addition with what uh, Jean Baptista said, uh, when you get here in uh, in US and you fleeing your country, your region, because of the fear that you don't want to either lose your life, you don't want to have your family, uh, you know, uh, anybody in your family lose their life. Uh, one of the things is that you have double fear. This is one of the things that I wish everybody can understand is that you have double fear. For example, when I was here, when I came 2012, and my wife and our uh, three children, our daughter then was less than two years old. She was one year plus. And, you know, it was devastating for her. And every time I could call them, you know, getting an opportunity to call them, which was not, it was an opportunity to get, you know, because it wasn't a, an everyday thing. We couldn't, I couldn't call every day. And I would talk to her, and the question she would ask is, because she was already starting to speak, was, Daddy, why did you go and left us? Now, when you have such a question, and again, you, you, you have left your family, this is a young family, and you don't know, you're not very sure whether these people who are threatening you will now come for your family. It is one of the... Uh, you know, one of the most disturbing things, uh, you know, to, 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 to experience. So having that fear, fear of unknown, fear, you don't, you don't know what is going to happen over there. You don't know whether what the process that you have started, whether it's going to uh, be fruitful to uh, bring your family over. So that is double fear. You, you, you have it's like double tragedy. You don't know what you, you, you are, you are, that is ahead of you. So, uh, uh, but one of the things is that, you know, uh, uh, when I applied for the, for, the, for, the, for the asylum and I got the receipt which says, states that I, 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 uh, they have received my document and I cannot leave the borders unless I have permission uh, and I can so that that gave me a little bit of some hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and you know uh, when someone asks you how wh why are you here, how did you come here, you know because so many places whether it's in the church or whatever you get so many of those questions from people how did you come here and why are you here, 
in many cases, you don't explain yourself. You, you, you know, you don't, uh, because you, you have a case here, you don't know how it will go. And again, uh, you, don't, you cannot uh, be repeating this story to everybody, like all what is happening and what happened. And, you know, uh, but uh, I, I would want the, uh, you know, the, I, the, I wish the American government I can know that, you know, that when someone is coming over here, they are not just coming for the sake of coming. Some, some people were comfortable in their own countries. And let me tell you, and uh, I can tell you this, that I was so comfortable. I was among, you know, the priests who had excelled in their ministry, in their parishes, and what I was doing, I was okay, uh, and I, I had some few investments here and there, but you know, everything's crumbled, everything comes down when you are not having peace, when you, uh, there are people who have left their beautiful houses. I left my beautiful house, I left everything because uh, I could not live there. I was forced by the pleasure, uh, pressure of, you know, someone wanting to harm me and to harm uh, either me and the members of my family. So that in itself, that, that you know, everybody should understand and uh, the American government should understand that when people are fleeing, uh, they are fleeing danger. They are fleeing, uh, they are fearing for their lives. They are trying to save their lives and the life of their loved ones. And that is all. And, and you know, I, I sometimes when I think about it, 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 it pains me because even though now I'm okay, but you know, for the first two years, it, you know, to be separated from my family for two years, it took me about two years before my family came over, uh, before the whole process was over. And for me to be away from my, my, my two sons and my daughter and my wife, uh, and putting the entire family uh, in so many questions. My parents could not understand, you know, even when I explained to them, they are old. Uh, my father and my mother-in-law could not understand, they are old, but they could not understand what, what's all this. And I, I am a priest, I am not a businessman that I had, uh, you know, some business, uh, sort of, uh, some business that went bad and I, some people, some rivalry or something like that. I am not in, you know, funny dealings, but I am just a priest, a priest. Just, I, somebody is trying to harm me because I have spoken against a system that is harming other people and, and you know, so, and torturing other people. So this is, this is, this is very dangerous. And so um, nobody could understand. And, 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 but for me now to come here and, uh, you know, to have gone through that process, which took two years, it wasn't easy. I was patiently waiting for it. And it, whichever way that you have gone, I don't know what I would have done because, um, uh, you know, uh, the threat was real. Uh, even the last time when I, after, all, after my sixth or seventh year, I, I got, you know, my, my father-in-law was sick and I went to Kenya. I was 
uh, I, I went to Tanzania so that I could, you know, see whether, uh, you know, I, I, I could see, see them or, or they could cross over or, you know, and it, it was, it, you know, you are in fear even, I, I can't go there freely, I can't go to even the neighboring country and be, uh, feel free uh, to be, you know, to be very close to the border. Uh, because you don't know, so it, it's not easy. But you know uh, what I would say is that uh, the, 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 the American or the, the, the American system or the government should know and understand that when people are coming here and seeking for asylum, they are truly, uh, you know, looking for, you know. A peaceful place to live and a place where they will not have the threat of half their lives taken away from them. Can I add something else that I, I would like to say? I know the time is running, but you know, yes, this is there is there is there is a good people. There are pro bono lawyers who, who do the, the work, who, who help asylum seekers. There are uh, uh, some other things that are being done, but not many people know that. I wish maybe there would be some way of communicating uh, that information that is there so that everyone, everybody where they are, well, if they come here, they know there are some pro bono uh, attorneys who can help. There are some organizations that can give them food, clothes, and so on and so forth. So if there, is, there were a way of communicating that information to people, that would be uh, wonderful. Thank you both so much. Due to our time, what I want to propose that we do now is we go, um, we move from the conversation into talking about the advocacy action steps that we so, um, we so hope, um, audience members, that you'll be inspired to take. There are very critical things on the line. We all need to be taking action. So we'll move there. And then we are going to go a bit past 5 p.m. Eastern time so that we can have a little bit of opportunity for Q&A, both with um, EMM and OGR staff members, but also with Joseph and John Baptiste. So let me share my screen. And Rashad, I'm going to turn it over to you when I get my screen pulled up to tell us what action steps we need to be taking right now. Can you see my screen, Rashad? Yep. All right. It did not go to the slide I had intended, but here we are now. <laughs> right, over to you. Thank you, Allison. So um, the imp most important thing you can do at this point is submit a public comment on um, the new asylum regulations that we mentioned earlier. Um, you can submit your comment um, on into the federal register. Um, and in the comment area, my colleagues um, shared our toolkit um, in Action Alert that will, will give you all of the, the details of how you can um, Located through the click to comment link through um, clinic. And then um, we also encourage you to write to your members of Congress. Um, we have an action alert through the Episcopal Public Policy Network um, about protecting access to asylum. So we also encourage you to take that um, action step as well to let your uh, representatives know that Asylum is an important issue to you. It's very important to human rights around the world and in the United States. And um, the policy changes that the administration is engaging in are egregious and um, not in line with our values as um, 
Episcopal members of the Jesus Movement. Thank you very much. So I want to invite everyone to submit any questions you might have in the chat box. And I also want to acknowledge that many uh, friends of EMM who are actively engaged in this work might have updates to share that we can read from the chat box. And if you'd like to share with all of the attendees, please do send those updates to us. Kendall, may I field a question to get us going? Certainly. <laughs> this is one I'm going to ask that we didn't have a chance to speak with Jean-Baptiste and Joseph about, but um, Jean-Baptiste and Joseph, in our preparation for today, when we spoke with all of you, both of you, um, when we asked you in our preparation how your faith has guided you, um, both of you smiled and laughed, and that's been the reaction of so many of our panelists, smiling and laughing with a knowing of how deep your faith is and how without it you wouldn't be where you are today. So I wanted to open the floor to ask if either of you would like to speak about your faith life um, and how it's led you through um, through the last decades of your life. Um, thank you. Thank you for that question. I, I don't know uh, what could have been look what could have been like without the faith that I have. I grew up as a Christian, um, and even my early uh, years, my early age, I was, even though, like I said, we were poor, but the faith was strong. Um, when I was in Congo as a coordinator of that small refugee camp, it was because I was, my faith, I was then not yet an ordained priest, but I was uh, there representing the church, the Anglican church in Rwanda and the church in, in Zaire, connecting both, both leadership. And, and the church ha has been, those, like in, in African culture, church or faith and, 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 and expressing our faith and dancing and singing and praying, that strengthened, even though you are desperate, but the, 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 the hope comes back with faith. So the faith has been really the, the backbone of my life and my, 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 spirit, my spiritual throughout, uh, without mentioning that if without church, uh, when my application was denied, maybe now to have died, but the church helped and, and now I, I am here and I'm, I'm able to, to serve and help other people. So the faith, has been really uh, a stronghold for me. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was uh, 17 years when I was 17 years old, and uh, you know that that transformed my life. And this is uh, the Anglican Church of Kenya is more evangelical that you know you have to make that confession that you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is not just about baptism, but you have to grow to that step of faith that you acknowledge that. And when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, when I was 17, one of the things I learned from the time I was young, that at that age, was uh, uh, to study my Bible and to pray. So, and I committed my life so much into prayer and my prayer life uh, 
have I have seen God move with me that everything I commit to God in prayer and I believe it so many things that I can count have happened in my life uh, when I believe in it I believe in God and I, I I pray about it and the experience all that that was happening to me and the time from the time I started receiving those threats. Probably I would have left Kenya before the 2012, but I was, you know, I kept believing God that things are going to change. I kept believing that, you know, it is going to change. It is going to, until it got to a point that now my wife said, you know, we are believing God. Yes, we have prayed, but it is also good to take precaution can't, can't you do something? Can't you first of all leave? And as we believe God, probably it's time that God needs us to trans, to, uh, to you know, to have a transition from here to another place. And you know that when I came here, that period of two years, one of the things I focused my life on because I was not working for eight months. Somebody is feeding me. Somebody, I'm sleeping in someone's house, not paying any bill, not having any, anything in my pocket. They have to transport me. They have to take me somewhere. You know, it wasn't easy. But one of the things that I did was using that time when they go to work and I'm left alone in the house to pray and seek God and believe God that eventually God is going to make this happen for me and for my family you know, covering my family by the blood of Jesus. And this is what I did for all that time, believing God. And I still believe God for greater things. Uh, and this far, you know, God by believing God. So my faith in him, Lily, was, uh, was, was a, you know, a, a game changer. That's what I can say. You know, you know faith is the uh, evidence of the things hoped for. Uh, the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of the things not seen. So that really worked, and I, I really thank God that his father has come. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing. Um, we do have a few questions. So I wanted to get a couple in. Um, Rashad, I imagine you would want to answer this. It's do you expect the new proposed rule to be challenged in court? If so, which advocacy group will lead the court challenge? Uh, yes, absolutely. The rule will definitely be challenged in court. That's um, usually the, the expected course of action when the administration takes executive um, actions that, that inhibit all manner of elements of immigration, refugee, and asylum policy. It's been lawsuits. Uh, um, I, I don't know who will will launch a challenge. I, I would imagine it would be any number of organizations, possibly Human Rights First, possibly um, the ACLU. I mean, it's a there's a, a wide variety of organizations that are that specifically work on, in the um, litigation space when it comes to immigration issues. So they would probably be the ones to to take the first um, the first whack at it. But but. Rest assured, there will definitely be court challenges for sure. Thank you, Rashad. Um, one person asked, are there certain judges and jurisdictions that are more like likely to help? Uh, yeah, that's a good question as well. Yeah, certain, certain um, courts are more favorable to asylum seekers than others. 
Um, I don't have the the numbers off the top of my head, but um, that is that's definitely the case. And I think one of the reasons the administration is um, implementing these new rules is is uh, because there are jurisdictions that are more generous to asylum seekers than others. They want them all to be more skeptical, to have to be more constrained in um, the the number of cases or the number of, of um, asylum claims that they approve and to limit the the criteria on which they can approve them. And one thing I should just note about the the rule changes um, in, in juxtaposition to um, the conversation we had during the first week of Love God, Love Neighbor online about DACA, um, the administration argued in court, at the, at the Supreme Court and in, in the public square that um, President Obama's executive action protecting DREAMers um, through the DACA program was this massive expansion of presidential power that he had no authority to do under the law, et cetera, et cetera. Yet we have seen in the, in the last three and a half years um, just in, incredible um, expansions of executive authority over immigration that this administration has engaged in unilaterally. Um, in, in many instances, in direct contradiction of statute law that Congress has passed on the Refugee Act, um, on asylum, you know, uh, is this, it, just you name it. Like, where's, where's the authority in, in federal law for restricting asylum policy? There, it's not there. Where's the, where's the, the law um, or where's the authority for restricting um, refugee admissions to a, a trickle, eighteen thousand this year. I mean, it, it's just the the um, double standard is is really glaring. So basically, the administration's argument is that um, the president has the authority to restrict immigration as much as he wants to, but any sort of grant of of clemency or mercy to immigrants is um, beyond the president's power. Um, so it's it's really quite um, uh, disappointing and 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 sad. And I think people should understand that. Um, this administration talks out of both sides of its mouth when it comes to what the president has the authority to do on immigration, because um, uh, the current president has not been shy about using his executive authority to um, severely restrict, far beyond what Congress ever intended, the ability of foreigners to to make a new home in this country. Thank you, Rashad. Um, and I've got a question that I think any or all of you might like to answer, but um, it's... What do you think are the most important things to explain about the asylum process to church members who are unfamiliar with it um, and perhaps suspicious of it? I, I would say um, one thing, people don't uh, think that these are criminals or terrorists and they, they, they are less than human beings and, and they are here to, to loot and eat their, or take their jobs and all that. Uh, one thing I would suggest people do is to let uh, their, their friends, their members, the, the society know asylum seekers are human beings, are people who are fleeing from persecution and the well-founded uh, fear. And pe for people to know that these people, they need to eat and, and sleep and be like others, and they, 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 ha they are traumatized. So to add trauma on top of who, what, what they have, it, it's sad. That's one. And two, 
uh, what, what members of our congregations need to know about, about asylum seekers. They, they need to know that these asylum seekers have no other resource, no other support, no other benefits uh, in this uh, country. So the only support and resource they have is the members of the congregation, the members that they, they, they live with. So for them to, to support them. Uh, other thing that uh, members need to know, they need to know that as, as uh, Arison said, there is no, there's no uh, attorney who is given by the government to represent this section of, of, of the population. Uh, so because of that, uh, I think those pro bono attorneys who give themselves the, the, the time to, do, to help them, but it is not known by many. And uh, also uh, supporting those pro bono attorneys to, to be able, even though they are pro bono, but at the same time, they also leave, need to leave and to, 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 to eat. And so uh, that, uh, it would be good for, for, for members to know that they, they, they need to be there and consider these asylum seekers as the, their neighbors that need 100% to, to work with and to learn from them because they have some experiences that others don't have. I think I will just say very briefly that if you've been with us this journey during June, these three Love God, Love Neighbor events, hopefully you've noticed that in each one of the webinars, we have um, we brought in individuals, members of the Episcopal Church, Episcopalians, who are represented in the communities that we're speaking about, the populations that are affected by the policies that we're talking about. So I think that's one important thing for all of us to do in our local churches is to continually remind people, like John Baptiste said, like asylum seekers are human beings and asylum seekers are our brothers and sisters, are members of our communities, are members of our church. Um, and I think that that's often very lost in all of this. There's so much abstraction and like ability to um, distance ourselves from the lived experiences of our fellow human beings. Um, so we are trying very hard in all the work that we do at EMM to lift up stories and to give the microphone to those whose voices need to be heard. And we do hope that you'll help, help amplify their voices by sharing this and other webinars with members of your churches and dioceses as well. Yeah, I believe that the, yeah, the church should be in the forefront, you know, to help the needy. And asylum seekers are needy. They are needy because they don't come here with anything. Uh, they are needy because they don't have any other support. Uh, so if the church can be, can stand on the gap and be, uh, you know, the institution that is going to help these people, you know, to just, you know, be able to stand on their feet, that will be uh, the greatest thing, impact in the lives of such people. Because they, the, them being members of the church, members of the community, uh, it is going to impact their lives for good. You can, I, I am just trying to imagine at that particular time in my first eight months with nothing. And, and if anybody came even to just ask me about how is my family doing? Uh, is my family uh, being, are they getting food? Are my children going to school or something, just giving a hand of help or something like that. You can imagine that kind of uh, help, what it would have done to me. 
And so for the church, the church should be, the body of Christ should be in the forefront to help the needy, to stand up for the rights of the needy, and to just help the needy, the needy to get the next level. Because a Salem seeker is, is not stagnant. This person, or just taking an example of me, I was looking for how I would be able to be a part of the community and have my family here. And then I, I would, you know, do what I, I know to do. You know, I will get myself out there to, you know, work so that I can provide, you know, uh, food for my family and, you know, life, livelihood. So that, that's what I would say. Thank you, Joseph and Jean-Baptiste. Um, I'm going to take us now to closing out our time together. So please wait while I share my slides. So I'll do this very quickly, but I do hope you'll stick with us through the end so we can close together um, in prayer that Jean-Baptiste will lead. So please watch your email. Within the next two or three hours, we'll be sending you an email with lots of follow-up action steps, including a direct link to the Click to Comment initiative where the whole faith community, the interfaith community is really trying to galvanize people to submit public comments on this new proposed rule. So again, please watch your email, please forward the email, please encourage people to participate in this a large scale action. We're trying to really register our outrage at what has been proposed and do everything we can to push back. Next, um, I, in the chat box, several of our participants today, um, all of you in the audience who work with asylum seekers have mentioned the importance of sponsorship. There are many organizations out there that EMM has partnered with who work on identifying sponsors who can walk alongside asylum seekers in their journey to receiving asylum. Um, our Supporting Asylum Seekers Toolkit is an excellent tool and resource to give you the background you need to understand what that might look like. And I want to highlight especially, um, we are going to launch an Episcopal Ministry Network on Asylum. Our initial organizing meeting for this network will be Monday, July 20th, noon to 1.15 p.m. Eastern Time. And there's a link to sign up for that in the follow-up email that you'll be receiving. So if what you've heard today is inspiring you to want to do more, Beyond submitting a comment, you have to submit a comment, but beyond that, please do join us for that initial organizing meeting. I mentioned book kits in my earlier remarks. You'll have a link to download our book kits. And then today's presentation will be released not only as a video replay, but also as a podcast episode. You can subscribe to the Hometown Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and also listen on EMM's website. So Jean-Baptiste, I'm going to turn it over to you to close us out in prayer. Thank you. I would like to invite each and everyone. Uh, I know uh, most of you are uh, on mute, uh, but this prayer that is before you, it's a, it's a, it's a prayer that I, I went to church on Sunday at St. John's in Arlington. Uh, it's, it's on a Zoom. Uh, and why the prayer, we, what, this was the prayer that was uh, among the prayers of the people. Uh, so I borrowed it so that we can use it as we close our, our uh, session today. I will be the reading and then where it is people, you all respond what is there. And then at the end, there is a, a, a prayer that I would invite you to if you can, to, to do it uh, together. Let us pray. For an end to violence and poverty, 
that displaces so many people from their homes and homelands. We pray. God of love, hear our prayer. For migrant workers, that they may labor and live in safe and just conditions, we pray. God of love, hear our prayer. For the families and children and migrant workers, that they be reunited, we pray. God of love, hear our prayer. For our lawmakers, that they establish and enforce laws that protect the rights and dignity of everyone, especially those most vulnerable in our country, including asylum seekers, we pray. God of love, hear our prayer. For employers and corporations, that they choose the dignity and worth of each over profit and power, we pray. God of love, hear our prayer. For our community and parishes, that we may continue to serve those without homes and resources, and that we speak out for, in, uh, for just immigration reform, we pray. God of love, hear our prayer. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jean-Baptiste. Thank you all for being with us. I saw some questions about if we could share that prayer. We certainly will. So again, please watch your email inboxes. Thank you for joining us today. Peace be with all of you and good night. Listeners, thank you for joining us. We pray that you will take the next steps to advocate for dreamers, refugees, and asylum seekers. The recording, PowerPoint presentation, and advocacy toolkits are all available on the Episcopal Migration Ministries website blog, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. Make a donation to support the Refugee Resettlement and Immigration Ministry of the Episcopal Church. Visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. Until next time. Peace be with you and all those you consider home.